And I sympathize with people saying, well, we have to travel somehow. How are we going to pay for it? But normally I tell them, you know, just don't do it through your blogs. Find a side job, do freelance work, get, you know, a part-time work visa, whatever it is. But if you want to build a business specifically around the words and travel together, then I think you do need to think about how much of the goodwill that you're taking from your readers at the beginning and where it's going. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Ian, whatever has inspired you to introduce the podcast this week? Oh, I didn't say I was going to introduce it. I said I had some jokes to make. Oh, really? I had some insights. Well, why don't you just open with the joke? Or should you want me to open with the traditional sort of... No, we can open with the joke. So this week's episode, <laughs> our producer, Jane... It's one for the writers! Spoke with Jody Ettenberg. I'm just being the hype guy now. You're, <laughs> you're laying down the rhyme. I'm being the hype guy. <laughs> and I just had a little bit of insight to share. So over the holidays, we were down in Florida together. Everybody knows that everyone's parents now live in Florida. So it's <laughs> it's a pretty amazing time during the holidays because you can get together with all your friends. It's not that big of a state. Me and Taylor Pearson went over to Jody's house. And I just want to share this, that Jody is as good of a cook as she is an eater. I know that everybody thinks that she just eats and writes a lot. She also cooks. And I had some of her curry, and it was delicious. Okay, so for those of you not invited to the party, Jody Ettenberg is the author of a blog called LegalNomads.com. She makes a full-time living as a writer, which I think is a f- an anomaly. No, I think, I think it's actually a better time than ever to make money with your writing. And Jody's, I think, someone who's demonstrated a way to do it that's classy. And she's not like out there like hawking stuff all the time. Like she writes these great pieces. She makes a good living off of it. How do you do that? We're going to talk about it today. Jody actually recently talked about this at TBEX, which is the travel blogging conference in Bangkok. I honestly think that Jody's message for travel bloggers is really powerful because I truly do understand the urge to write a travel blog. That's a cool thing. But if you've got those skills, understand that you could translate them into making a living online by sharing your writing, by creating useful things for people. Here's my question about the travel blogging conference, and maybe you know the answer to this. How many travel bloggers do you think wrote the organizers and asked for free tickets (laughs) for compensation for writing about this travel blogging conference? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's not just us, it's fans of Jody. It's our producer, Jane. And coming up, you're going to hear their conversation. You're going to hear why Jody thinks that strong narratives are so important. Her views on the balance between making money, keeping your integrity, and making great art. And you'll hear her thoughts on how travel writing might develop over the next few years. All that and more, Bossman and I will be back at the end of the episode to tell his final joke. So here's that interview. Exits to freeways twisted like knots on the fingers. My name is Jody Ettenberg, and I am a travel and food writer. I write for a site called LegalNomads.com, and it's called that because I used to be a lawyer, and now I'm pretty much nomadic these days. 
I've been reading your blog a really long time when I was still a journalist and I was thinking about having another career and having a bit more freedom in my life. And I think what drew me to your blog in particular was not just the quality of the writing, but the way that you seem to have a very clear narrative. And what that narrative seemed to me was that it was about food, but how food connected you to the people and the cultures that you were travelling in. And I just wondered if that was how it came about. I think you came and started reading at the time where that was a focus, but it was a focus that happened as I started travelling. And I often say, you know, the reason that I care so much about food isn't just, it is delicious, of course, but... As people point out, you know, I have celiac disease, I'm limited in what I can eat. It's not just about the pleasure of eating, it's that food is the best lens for me to get to what I really care about the most, which is learning as much as possible. And food gives me this amazing window into the anthropology, the culture, the etiquette, all these societal norms that I probably wouldn't have that kind of unfettered access to. But if you pay attention as people eat and you see these traditions, it's a really great way to learn. And it actually sort of came about the most when I came to Asia. I I came through Siberia and Mongolia into China and It was in China that I really saw that it was this lifeblood, certainly more than in Siberia and certainly more than in Canada, where I grew up. In Bangkok, I remember reading it, you seem to have a really amazing cast of kind of characters that you went through. I think there was the coffee lady. And can you just tell us about how you came to know some of those people? I think all of them got to know me and I got to know them for the same reason, which is that I just get really excited about food. And I think there's this sort of everyone in in Vietnam that I met joked about how, you know, in Vietnamese, you don't say to someone they're they're a good person, you say he has a good stomach. That's the way the literal translation is. And food is just so integral that when someone who's foreign takes an interest in it, I think there's kind of one raised eyebrow that happens too. Certainly there's tons of foreigners who care about food. I just think I get really happy and excited and I come behind the counter and ask questions and I would go myself and then I would come back and bring friends and more friends and my friends joke that they call me their food angel and there was nothing really nefarious about it but it brought them business too so I think it's a confluence of things there too. I definitely have stayed in touch with a lot of them over the years and you know here in Chiang Mai there is a woman who makes smoothies named Mrs. Pa and I featured her on CNN years ago. You know when I go back every year I love seeing her, I catch up, we get a huge hug and when I'm not there people are asked, you know, do you know Jody? where is she? People just remember, and I'm honored that I've made any sort of impact in that way, but I'm also honored by the fact they've shared, you know, their food with me and, and how they make it as well. You gave a keynote speech at a really big travel blogging conference recently in Bangkok. I didn't hear it myself, but I read quite a lot of the comments that were online about it, which were incredibly positive, but it seemed to carry quite a strong message, or in fact, number of messages. And I think just for the listeners of this podcast, it would just be useful if you could run through perhaps some of those most important kind of points that you made. Sure. I think... You know, it was a closing keynote, and so it's sort of given the ability to be more on the inspirational, aspirational front and less purely practical. I did want to give some practical tips. I often try and put together a resources page for all the speeches I give. But in this case, the goal was basically to implore travel bloggers to, you know, do the things that they learned that weekend, which is work on their monetization streams, you know, focus on keywords for SEO get better at writing, but that there should be this other component to their business, which is to tell the stories that change people's lives. 
I think a lot of people become travel bloggers because they want to travel longer and travel for free. And that's one group of people. Those are not the people I really was speaking to. I want the people who are thinking about it as a sustainable business to really understand what I truly believe to be true, that travel only changes lives if you're showing people this ability of otherness to become close so showing the ability of faraway places to seem comfortable to seem connected and telling the stories that make people see the world differently if you're just doing the top 10 lists which you know people need fine they want to know where to go but you're not winning awards based on another guide to Penang you're not going to stand out in a world full of top 10 lists unless you create this hook that your community and your readers can be a part of and, and I would argue that the hook is done through stories. So let's just break that down a little bit. So one thing that sort of really struck me from one of the comments I read was that you seem to be encouraging people to focus on details rather than sort of huge ideas and concepts. And what do you really get from focusing on perhaps the details of people's lives or the details of cultures? I chose that specific line because I think it was a very meta topic for an audience that wasn't really interested in hearing it. And I wanted to give sort of a guiding light in a sense that allows people to rethink the way they frame what they write. And so the quote I used was from Don George, who writes for National Geographic, among many other things. But he wrote an article recently in the Intelligent Travel column that used a line I loved, which said, the truth blooms from the seeds of a specific detail. And I used that as part of the speech because I think it provided a good starting point. I said, okay, you're in Paris. How many guides and accommodations and food roundups and whatever have been written about Paris. What is a detail that you can talk about? When I urged them to do that, it was to take you know, all of the experiences that made them who they were and landed them in that room, that they have a unique voice that a lot of them just aren't exploring. Me as a former lawyer, a celiac, someone who's obsessed with long-form writing, there are all these things that make me a Jody, and everyone in that audience has that series of things that I think is the power that they have to find that detail and then broadcast it in a way that is different from the person sitting next to them. And I think the thing that I'm interested in when I read your writing is that you seem to use detail to tell you something. So you don't just say the woman was wearing a blue shirt. Every description that you use seems to direct you towards an interesting point about somewhere. It's just what I notice. I definitely am not strategic about it. It's interesting that you say that. It's not conscious in that way. I think I just, I see things in images in my head, you know. I have a, I think my memory is more photographic. When I describe things as I write them, you know, when I'm going back, I have notes about a place, but I'll look at my notes and then I will also look at the photos. And it's not until I look at the photos that it comes like rushing back in a visceral sense that makes me ready to write. So I think the way that I describe the details is more how I see it in my head as an image and that comes out, but I definitely don't do it intentionally in that sense. I was going to ask you about that, how important the photos are, because you're a really good photographer and I know that you've got some fantastic images on your site and how important that is. Are sometimes the photos where things start or...? I've worked hard to try and get better. You know, I, I always say I'm not a photographer in the classic sense in that I have no technical photographic knowledge. I made the joke the other day that, you know, the photos are the plate and my words are the meal. You need to eat off something. But to me, they're the accessory to the main show, which is that I love to write. However, I do think, you know, putting terrible photos on a post looks crass. It looks terrible. 
And I used to go through Alan Taylor in In Focus. You know, he was formerly at The Big Picture. He curates these amazing photo essays. And just by the captions on his photos, he tells a story. And I used to look at his photos that he chose and thought, okay, which ones appeal to me? And I would break them down. What in them was important? Why do I feel connected to them? And use that as a guide when I took photos to think about how I wanted to showcase what I was seeing. So I think it's definitely another component. It can be used as punctuation. It can be used in many different ways, but I do think everyone should try and at least think about that kind of craft. It's not just the writing. Even if you're a writer and if you're a photographer, captions matter as well. You know, Both of those things are beautifully braided together and no matter what you do online. I think something else that comes through is your very consistent personal narrative based around soup or some of it. Yeah. How important is that really for, for developing an identity? I think it's very important and you know in general when I hear people give great speeches about their own success stories a lot of them have similar elements which is that they're able to have created this brand in the eyes of their audience and their community that the community wants to go to bat for but it's consistent and I think in my case I've never been afraid to poke fun at some of the things that I feel excited or not excited about you know I certainly do not love olives that's been online I have been crapped on by 14 birds and a bat since I quit my job which is absurd and I think a vendetta at this point but I had a bird crap counter on an otherwise quite serious website in terms of the long-form stories, I think it's all just, we're human. We have the silly sides, we have the angry sides, we have the happy sides, and what's important is that you kind of funnel these into what I always talk about as narrative loops that your readers can optimize and repeat and feel like they want to reach out to you about those things. So my readers do write me and send me photos of soup all the time, not because I'm telling them to, but because, you know, when I write, it often comes back to soup and they feel that that's their connective node to what the brand is that I've created online. And I think it's important. The other thing I've noticed is that you talk about why you love what you do rather than telling people why they should do it. You kind of just indicate what's positive about it rather than being very directional to them. Yeah, I mean, I also talk about what's negative. I think it's important to be honest about it and show the vulnerabilities as well. But I was always very cognizant of not putting on a front that wasn't genuine and also not being someone who instructed readers you know, in the speech, I talked about how storytelling is expensive and not persuasive. It's important for you to get to the conclusion as a reader and believe that you wanted to be there. Same way, you know, you read books like Difficult Conversations about negotiation tactics. The best negotiators have the other person reach the conclusion themselves, think it's what they wanted, even though it's what was the aim, you know, of the whole thing. It's the same with storytelling. And I think it's the same in general with these really big picture issues such as life decisions I can't tell someone that my decision is their decision all I can do is show them my story share with them the good and the bad and allow them to make that decision themselves fully informed I think it's unfortunate there are a lot of sites out there that really do give these instructive quit your job do this I'm telling you it's it's free and that may be true for a lot of people but I think it's really a highly individualized choice and there's just no shame in making the decision it's not for you it's all about prioritizing and what one person thinks is important to another is quite different. When you read the kind of 10 things you should do in Rome in two days type blogs and ones that are full of Instagram or the way that some of those kind of shorter form perhaps blogs are are written and have proliferated, do you find it frustrating? How do you feel about it? I mean, look, I've tried to write short form. I'm just really long-winded, I think. (laughs) I've tried really hard. 
really, have you? Even my short posts, I'm like, oh, a thousand words. I can't do it. Do you think, damn, another thousand words? I used to apologize. The Saigon post was 5,000 words. And I was like, I'm really sorry, guys. This is a doozy. And my readers finally just got really mad. And they were like, stop apologizing. We love your long posts. And so I finally was just like, all right, I'll own this. I'm long-winded. But I don't think I'm just creating words, you know, for the hell of it. It's definitely part of the whole story I want to tell, but certainly have a lot of trouble with 140 characters, totally fine. Like 5,000 words, totally fine. Anything in between is awkward. I think in general that there's certainly a trend on the web toward sound bites in short form. I'm more frustrated by the hyper-mercenary optimization for social media. Like if I see... Wow, hang on. It's something, what, is, what is hyper? Like the, yeah, yeah. Okay, make a vertical pin. It should be turquoise. Maybe this dimension. Why don't you put this banner on it and these words and put it on Pinterest? You know, it's very Like specific. a formula. A formula. And look, formulas are there for a reason. They do work. I think Buffer, the blog, which is the social media service, you know, their blog is great and they have a really thorough explanation of what works and what doesn't. And as I said in the speech as well, it's important to be aware of all those things. I went the opposite way and I had to learn, you know what, these things are important as well. I had to. My readers said to me, Jody, please write guides for where to eat. As a celiac, we're scared. We have the disease. Can you show us? It's not that I thought I was above guides or anything like that. It was just, it wasn't what I was looking for, so it wasn't what I shared. But I also have to listen to my readers, and there's no question that a lot of people looking online are looking for those things. There's a reason why the keyword traffic comes for those kinds of posts. But I do think if you're looking for a guide for something and you find a very short post, it's not going to fulfill what you need. There is something about you know writing sufficiently and has enough resources that really does provide what you think readers want. That's the priority. I think it's useless to try and focus on like whether some of the web is too focused on short form. It's more, okay, the web has moved in this direction of not just long-form narrative and not just sound bites, but something in the middle, which kind of has a grouping of both. And how creative can we be with that format? And how engaging can we make it, even though it's an informational post? Were you worried about how your talk might go down? Yes. <laughs> definitely. No, I was. I was definitely freaking out. No lies there. I was worried. Why? That, because I think this audience specifically, a lot of the travel blogging groups that I've been a part of, a lot of people are very much, you know, I don't care whether it needs to be long form or not. I just want to make more money or I just want to get more free shit. And I don't think that's everybody, but it's certainly a part of the audience. And it's probably the part of the audience that yells the loudest. I think the industry has had a bit of an entitlement issue and an integrity problem. There have been a lot of direct marketing organizations, DMOs that have come to me because I don't take press trips and confided in me about the unprofessionalism on some of the trips. And that's certainly not limited to travel blogging. I know every industry has their ghosts and their problems and everything else. But this was the speech I really wanted to give. And I was concerned that people would find it a naive message to implore an audience to want to do good as well as to make money. It felt like you'd been thinking about it for a long time. I think I have. I've certainly had a lot of rants about it in person to colleagues, Dan included. I think that I had the benefit of working as a lawyer and saving up money. I didn't quit my job to be a travel blogger. I found myself in a community of travel bloggers confused that they existed only because I was really just in my own world and I was eating and traveling and sharing and it was just news to me that there was an industry of people who wanted to do this and not it happened by accident. And so 
that was probably in 2010 when I started thinking about it more as a business and it's certainly shifted my perspective and I've become a lot more strategic in many ways but I think what hasn't changed is you know I quit my job as a lawyer to travel for one year when I saw I could tell stories for a living that became this wonderful thing that I already was excited about generally and it made sense that it I could try and make it into a business. But I was not trying immediately to make money because I had saved money up as a lawyer. And so I was able to build the site just on the back of stories and not even think about the monetization. And I think that it grandmothered me in to the industry in a way that was a bit different than people now. And I sympathize with people saying, well, we have to travel somehow. How are we going to pay for it? But normally I tell them, you know, just don't do it through your blogs. Find a side job, do freelance work, get, you know, a part-time work visa, whatever it is. But if you want to build a business specifically around the words and travel together, then I think you do need to think about how much of the goodwill that you're taking from your readers at the beginning and where it's going. There was a post not long ago from a couple who wrote the ways that travel bloggers can monetize and they said, you know, people say you shouldn't monetize at the beginning and you can't make money. Therefore, you know, we're going to show you that that's wrong. And they interviewed people who did make ad money. Of course, you can make money. But the reality is it comes down to your definition of success, right? If you want to build a remarkable, sustainable business, I would argue it's a mistake to try and convert readers immediately into sales. I think for me, success was, am I making more of a difference in people's lives? Am I helping them for things they're afraid of? Am I convincing them to think a little more and a little differently about the role food has? Those things mattered as well as making enough to live. Obviously, if I wasn't saving money at what I'm doing now, I would have gone back to being a lawyer, figured something else out. I think this audience particularly surprised me because they were a lot more receptive to the message that what matters is not just about the money, it's also the ability to affect change. And if you're putting yourself out online specifically in a personal narrative way, if you're connecting you as a human to your brand, then I think it's great to try and leverage that to make more people think differently. It's certainly not everyone and most online businesses don't necessarily, but in travel, I think it's a gift that you have that you can use. I notice you do go back once a year and get your qualifications so that you could go back and be a lawyer. I mean, was that a very conscious decision? Oh man, the thought of ever writing the bar exam again is more why. I was like, this is never happening. So just to be clear, you have to go back once a year, take, sit a test. So that no, you no, you check a box on a form. Actually, New York State lets you, if you're not practicing in the state of New York, you check a box that says, I'm not practicing, which I'm not. I'm not working as a lawyer at all. And you pay your dues every two years, actually, and you're able to maintain your bar admission for the state. Every jurisdiction is different. That happens to be New York. So I'm still in good standing, but I couldn't practice in New York State unless I did, like, the ethics catch-up courses and stuff like that. I do it, I think, for two reasons. One is it probably helps my family sleep better at night to know that I can go back if I need to. And also, I was joking the other night that I have a Google canned response called Angry Parents because a lot of parents send me these really irate emails about how I'm contributing to the irresponsibility of their children's decisions. And I think I get them partly because I was a lawyer and so a lot of them might want that for their kids. But the whole thing in my response to them is always, what is the worst case scenario for your child? Please ask them that question. And for me, it was worst case, I can always, I have this qualification, I haven't let it lapse. Worst case, I can go back. And that's just a good thing to have in your pocket, I think, even if my goal is not to use it. (laughs) I have considered writing a blog myself. The thing that's always put me off was how much I'd want to disclose about my private life and whether it would become intrusive and also the balance of whether I felt I could walk that tightrope without being dishonest. 
or not allowing people in enough so it would be interesting. I wonder how you think about that and manage it. I think it's a very important thing, especially as a woman online. There's definitely more risk in terms of the backlash from the internet. Personally, my dating life, my personal life, things like family crises, those things are not on my blog. And I'm sure my readers would be interested because it fills in the blanks about who I am. But I want to maintain that privacy. I just, I think it's important for my own sanity as well. I think it's a really personal decision in terms of what you do and don't want to share. I would pay good money to read your stories. I'll tell you that you've been and done and seen a lot of things and most people won't get a chance to you and I'm sure your perspective would be really valuable. And that's ultimately why I decided to keep doing it because unbeknownst to me, people that were not my mother seemed to find it valuable and then wrote me and I thought, well, if there's something new that they're learning, I'll keep doing this, you know? I try and be as honest as possible, absolutely. I vaguely alluded to the fact that, you know, there have been personal relationships, there have been things going on. Definitely the focus for my brand is about the food and the learning and there are some personal things that I will and would write more about like for example if it's something that would help others I've dealt with anxiety my whole life that's something I want to write about once I formulate my thoughts in the way that I feel comfortable but even though that's more vulnerable I think it's important so that it shows that's the whole bravery is not being fearless it's doing the stuff you're afraid of. It's interesting you bring that up, actually. I was about to ask you about that because the other thing that I see often in blogs is they're so upbeat. Nothing must be, I'm just having a really bad week. Or What's the balance between being honest and keeping readers? Do readers want to read about your really bad weeks as well? It's funny because people ask me, like, how do you decide that tone? And I, I feel like I'm missing something because I don't actually think about it. I just write the story I feel like telling <laughs> at that juncture, you know. This summer, you know, I fell and I fractured a rib and I got a concussion. I wouldn't have normally written about it but for the fact that I couldn't sit and write anymore. And it was so painful. I was just lying on the floor like an idiot. I wrote about it and the post was about staying still and how sometimes you just have to listen to what your body tells you. And I've been very, very bad at that over the years. You know, and it was really interesting because the reaction of my readers, I was like, oh, hopefully they don't think I'm just sitting there and, and giving up or, or that I'm not being strong enough. It was the exact opposite. They're like, we love your writing. We love your blog. You have to be better to do what we need you to do. So take care of yourself and listen to what your body is telling you. And I think in that sense, if you're a writer and there's that double-edged sword that words can do, they can harm you by putting them out, but they can also help. And I think it even helped me in the eyes of my readers to admit these things, to be human, because no one necessarily wants to idolize the people that they are looking and reading online. They want to feel like they are human too. So it's important to tell the stories that show that you're human, but there's a difference between, you know, being narcissistic about it and whining about it and then just laying your cards down and saying like, this is where I am and I'm sitting in grief or I'm sitting in pain or there are ways to do it that, you know, stay classy. <laughs> and I think it's part of my speech too was saying, you know, there is a difference in online writing. It, narcissism and whining about things is not storytelling. They had that hipster Barbie post on Wired magazine recently from a, a parody Instagram feed where it was a Barbie doll and all these hilarious travel situations with really pithy hashtags and really pithy captions. And the point is, it's not real if you helicopter to the top of a mountain, pitch a tent and say, it was great to wake up here. It's a lie. If you decide to lead an unconventional life and you decide to make choices that set you apart from the norm, I think you owe it to the people that are reading your site or your stories or you're seeing your photos to be honest and not let them 
create castles in their head about what it is you do because the only way that they can really affect change for themselves is to understand the process that you went through as well. Just finally, are you optimistic about the future for the kind of long-form blogging you do and indeed long-form in the age of what we're kind of led to believe is shorter and shorter attention spans and people kind of being drawn in so many different directions by social media and the internet? I think that the human race is made up of very, very different people and there are people who don't want to read long form and there are people who do. People at the beginning when I started blogging were like, Jody, real talk, please make shorter posts. And I was like... I want to read long posts online, so I'm going to write long posts, you know. I'm going to curate long-form writing from around the web because I care about that stuff. And if people believe that what I share is important and read it, then I'm doing the right thing, you know. There are certainly more people than anyone expected caring about long-form. And it's been really exciting to see longform.org and longreads. You know, longreads was the starting point for that using the hashtag. And their founder had the abundance mentality, Mark Armstrong, and he said to all these other sites, use the hashtag. Like, I want people reading long-form. And it's great to see even sites like BuzzFeed, you know, started out doing listicles of everything and invested serious money in investigative journalism around the world. And their CEO, you know, said in an interview, not just we want to tell these stories, but we want to tell these stories in a really specific way and push our reporters down the rabbit hole in ways that other entities that don't have the kind of funding coming from their advertorial and their entertainment lists can do. And it's been really cool to see the stories that are coming out of BuzzFeed. You know, there's a recent one about Kazakhstan and the village that fell asleep. But even in the last few days, there's been one about a guy in India that's selling execution drugs back to the States. There are not any other outlets online telling this story. And I think a lot of people are eating their hat because it is BuzzFeed. But it's really, really great. And it's a testament to the vision of their CEO that says, we have an audience, they're captive, they're millennials. How can we teach them something that they wouldn't read anywhere else? I think that's the beauty of the web. Can you see that developing? It'll, I think, braid into multimedia is what's going to happen. There'll be a way that it's faster to build beautiful content online and faster to put together that graph and like the algorithm that is both moving pictures, not just GIFs, but like brief videos and sound bites and all these things where you can have this kind of participatory experience that'll really add and deepen the long form reading. I think that that would be a really amazing way to see the future. And you're still committed to it? I certainly don't have the capacity to do the multimedia part. I think my readers want me to do video, but I laugh every time I see my face. (laughs) Yeah, for the writing, definitely. I think, if anything, I'm grateful for the business I've been able to build because it allows me to put energy more into my site. And now that there's an audience for it, you know, tell the stories, write about the history of chili peppers, write about where fish sauce came from. Like, those are the things I find interesting that others may not Google, but when they come to the site and see it, they might learn something, and that's what keeps me going. You are listening. You are listening. Ian, I gotta be honest, there's a big part of me that wants to have Jody's business. I know. Wouldn't it be awesome? I know. Yeah, you. St- I've seen you struggle with it for years, actually. You got to have talent, man. You know, one of the things I love reading Jody's blog, I look forward to that when the RSS reader gets bolded for legal nomads. If you guys have any thoughts about blogs that you think we should be reading that you really enjoy, people that are really just bringing real value to the table, like Jody does, we'd love to hear about it in the comments of this episode, as well as we'll link to a lot of the things that Jody's up to. This episode is going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash one for the writers. Jody, 
I just want to say this as a closing remarks, Jody. Do you really think Jody's listening to this right now? Well, if she is, I'm not sure <laughs> she is. But if she is, I just want to apologize to her and her dad for drinking all the beer. So. <laughs> Sorry about that. We should just get you a t-shirt where it's like a perma apology for that. Sorry. <laughs> All right, boss man. I'll see you next Thursday morning. And thanks for Jody and Jane for doing all the heavy lifting on this one. I really enjoyed listening to this interview. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.